prison labor is exploitation a priori at, at the start, right? From the jump, given the the building in of the 13th Amendment, right? Given the just vast wage difference, right? Between an incarcerated person and, and a non-incarcerated person, given the lack of insurance, right? Especially any death benefits, um, given the lack of any of these types of, of things that we would afford person with basic human dignity, right? So, so that's the exploitative aspect of it. Um, at the same time, the other word that, again, is the paradox that I, that I pose is transformation, right? Especially at the level of identity. There is a sense of self that emerged on these crews and a sense of self that was born out of the risk of firefighting and of the relationships, the very intimate and very vulnerable and very inclusive relationships between the men. Um, and I found it utterly powerful. Welcome to season two of the Life of Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Monti. And before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to give you guys a big thank you for all the support through the winter. Uh, I've had a lot of people asking me when uh, the new episodes were going to go up and when the new when the new season was going to go live. So it's been really great to see everybody's excitement about the podcast. And I'm especially uh, thankful for those who have supported my Patreon, even though I haven't put a new episode out in a couple months now. I've had people supporting the Patreon every month, and I've had new people coming on and um, becoming patrons, despite the fact that I haven't actually put an episode out since January. So I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm looking forward to putting out some more consistent episodes this summer, especially as fire season kicks off. And hopefully this season will last through to October with bi-weekly episodes. Um, we're going to maintain the, the interview style episodes. I tried the more narrative style episode with the um, Wildland Firefighter Mental Health episode back in January. And that took a lot of time. And since I'm still just a one-man show or a one-woman show, I guess, I'm going to probably kind of steer clear of that. Uh, it just ends up taking a little bit too much time. So sticking with the interview format, we're going to keep talking to experts in the fire realm and getting their input on whatever it is that their specialty is. Uh, this season, we've got uh, wildfire practitioners, we've got indigenous practitioners, we've got pyrogeographers, we've got people who are just really, really smart, and I can't wait to ask them a bunch of relatively dumb questions so that you guys can all have a little bit better of an understanding of, of their research and their work, um, while also just kind of building a better foundation of understanding for wildfire and wildfire in the West. So with that all being said, I just want to say thank you once again for all the support. And if you guys are interested in supporting my Patreon, um, that can be found on all of our social media pages at the uh, the links in my bio. Um, I'll also have it linked to the show notes for this episode. Um, any support is appreciated. I'm hoping to do a bit more traveling for the podcast and for other wildfire-related stories this summer. So uh, that Patreon support goes directly to travel costs, equipment costs, and uh, paying for my time while I report and uh, produce this podcast. So I really appreciate the shares and the monetary support and whatever other support you guys are able to give. And also, I would love to ask that if you've enjoyed the podcast or if you've um, shared the podcast with anybody that you maybe give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, that just kind of improves my visibility on there, which I have been trying to build a little bit, uh, especially as we get into our second season. So thanks again, everybody. And Thanks also to Mystery Ranch for their continued support. They've 
provided a few products that I will hopefully be giving away on the Life with Fire Instagram page in the next few weeks to uh, build a little bit more momentum as the second season kicks off here. Uh, So keep an eye out for that. And finally, we'll get into our first episode of this season. Um, I'll be talking with Lindsay Feldman today, Dr. Lindsay Feldman. She's an anthropologist who works at the University of Memphis right now, but she received her PhD from the University of Arizona. Um, She became interested in the carceral system through her work in college, um, which led to getting a graduate degree and also working on a PhD dissertation about incarcerated firefighting, particularly about um, incarcerated firefighting uh, crews in Arizona. Now, Dr. Feldman deserves some serious street cred here because she actually tagged along with a couple different prison crews for two seasons in Arizona. And she has some pretty hilarious insights from her time as a wildland firefighter, um, which she did for the sake of research. Um, And she self-proclaimed, says that she's not very good at it. And we'll talk more about that during the interview. But her work, her research was a a really fantastic deep dive into not just the sort of inherent exploitation of incarcerated firefighters, um, but we also talked about the transformative elements of uh, firefighting and especially of incarcerated firefighting. And So Lindsay and I talked a lot about the paradox of having two things at once where you can have exploitation, but you can also have a transformative experience, Um, something that for the men that she worked with specifically in the Arizona carceral system, the experiences of fighting fire really helped them frame their identity and really helped them um, develop experiences and skills that would benefit them after incarceration. Lindsay wrote hundreds of pages on this topic, so she's much better suited to be speaking about this than I am. So let's hear from Lindsay. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, awesome. So I guess to start out, just if you could tell me a little bit about your background um, in general, but also just as it pertains to your research with um, incarcerated firefighters. Sure. So I am an assistant professor at the University of Memphis uh, in the Department of Applied Anthropology. And I conducted my dissertation research and all of my graduate research and undergraduate actually (laughs) at the University of Arizona. Um, And the specific project that I assume we'll be talking about today is, um, like I said, my dissertation research with incarcerated wildland firefighters in Arizona. So um, came to understand at least a teeny tiny bit about wildland firefighting. I'm certainly going to defer to the experts all along here, <laughs> including who I'm speaking to uh, uh, throughout the interview. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I came to understand wildfire a little bit. Awesome. And then what sort of piqued your interest at first in this this research in the in the inmate wildfire program in Arizona specifically? Mm -hmm. So before I went to grad school, I uh, worked at a nonprofit in Tucson, Arizona, where it's which is where the U of A is and where I'm from as well. And uh, at the nonprofit, I was running a mentoring program for men and women getting out of prison. And it was actually, I think my third client, uh, right out of undergrad, very kind of ready to help, you know, kind of that attitude. And he, he came in, he had just gotten released and, and, and showed up with a packet of all of his various certificates, various trainings, you know, all of his, his red card, everything. And, and I didn't know one thing about wildland firefighting or structural firefighting at that point. Um, but he told me, you know, that there were crews, um, 
at the time, I think maybe there were 10. And, and then when I was working with the crews, there were 11. So a really, a really small, relatively um, number of crews, especially compared to California. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he just told me all about it. And I was absolutely intrigued by the work and, and also intrigued by the element of the fact that he could not be employed by the city of Tucson firefighting, uh, to, you know, the structural firefighting um, uh crews, I guess, um, because of his felony. So, you know, again, very naive. And I was like, oh, we'll get you a job as a city of Tucson firefighter. And and he actually was the one who informed me that he, he could not be employed there. And so I, you know, at that point, wrote it down, thought about it. And then I kept thinking about it for many years <laughs> and, and went to grad school Um diverted a little bit and and did my research my master's research on ranchers and cowboys so I went and rode on horseback um try to understand the working identity of of folks whose uh, life ways were are disappearing you know with with exurbanization happening all across the west and returned to the idea that piqued my interest several years prior and decided to go for it decided to make that my dissertation that's great. So obviously the idea was peaked in Arizona, but I am curious if you'd ever considered doing this research in California. So, you know, the way it was mostly about access, right. um, of course, uh, especially in the, the prison context. So having access to incarcerated crews is challenging. And I know that's challenging for folks who, who do any kind of prison research. And, and I think I was coming at it more from the prison um, understanding the experiences of incarcerated um, people and and labor specifically incarcerated labor. So coming from that angle first, um, you know, I, I had access into the prison a little bit with my nonprofit work. And so that just made sense to me. And to be honest, you know, the, and it's something that I talk about in my dissertation and I, and I think about the culture of the wildland firefighting crews uh, specifically in Arizona is very interesting and it's very almost homegrown in a way and and in a way that's very different than California's uh, uh, incarcerated wildland firefighting program. So I actually found that very compelling from a ethnographic perspective. So I'm, I'm happy I did, (laughs) I did it. And it was also, you know, right, right in my backyard too. Totally. Can you explain what you mean by homegrown a little bit more? Just explain like the sort of differences that you've perceived between the California and Arizona systems. Sure. So of course, one is just the size, right? The sheer mm-hmm. number of, of people doing this work is, is really, really different. Again, in Arizona, there were 11 crews, 10 of which were from uh, male prisons and one was a, was a female prison firefighting crew. They added a 12th crew, I believe, um, maybe two years ago, mm-hmm. maybe three. I don't know what time is anymore <laughs> uh, of of formerly incarcerated wildland fire. So they made up kind of a, a post-release crew, um, which is, is really interesting, but that was after my, my research. Um, so, you know, it was easier for me to wrap my head around the size and, and by homegrown, what I mean is the, the person who founded the, the program in Arizona was still working and it very much had a place in the lore of, of the wildland firefighting crews. He, everybody knew him. Everybody really seemed to respect him from what I saw and, and from the interviews I had. Um, and there was, there was just a story behind it, you know? So it was very much, you know, he, he was a corrections officer at a particular prison and 
the bushes next to it caught on fire and he just gathered up, you know, a, a, a group of, of incarcerated folks and they put out the fire and he had firefighting experience prior to, to being a corrections officer living in rural Arizona. And he kind of amalgamated the two interests and, and, and um, work experiences and, and created the program. So again, there's a story to it. It felt almost like a, a um, uh, I don't know, I don't know, a, a cultural phenomenon more than kind of a bureaucratic phenomenon, if that makes sense. Um, although I'm sure if I did my research in California, I'd find interesting origin stories there too. But, but yeah, I found that very interesting. And again, when I, I talk a lot about the differences between the experiences of folks who, who, you know, in the prison versus on the fire line, I talk about that difference a lot. And I think the fact that there is this kind of scrappy homegrown kind of cultural relevance to the firefighting program in general, it almost distinguishes it a little bit more, right, than the kind of, you know, monotonous, really rigorous, really boring labor that happens on a prison yard. So I, I guess that was really interesting to me. That's awesome. And I think I'll probably touch on that a little bit more in a, in a minute here, but um, I wanted to kind of hear about your experiences because you kind of dove fully into this. You dove in head first. Um, you worked alongside the crew in Arizona, or the crews in Arizona, and you did so for 15 months, you said. I'm guessing that was an in increment, but um, I'm just curious if you, like why that, why you felt that that was sort of an essential part of this research for you or why you felt that that was, um, that was going to be an important part of, of what you wanted to do. Great question. And um, it was not my idea, actually. So I have to be honest, I was told um, by the the correctional officers right at the right at the outset. So I got approved by the prison broadly to do the research and I had planned just on going to, you know, it, it showed my ignorance, right, of the entirety of wildland firefighting in general. Um, I was like, oh, I'll go to the camps, which that that very often didn't happen, right? There weren't big enough fires for there to kind of have a full setup. They were just parking on the side of the road and sleeping on the side of the road and putting out the fires. Um, real, really much smaller fires than in Oregon and 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 California and, and those places. Um, so the complexes were really different. But um, yeah, so I was like, oh, I'll just go and do interviews and and whatever, you know, I, I didn't even think about becoming a wildland firefighter or maybe in the back of my mind, I thought about it, but thought I could avoid it. Um, and they told me essentially, um, again, represented, they were the correctional officers. So representing all of the crews, they had pulled together a meeting to, so I could introduce myself. And it was very intimidating because I walked into a room uh, of, you know, 40 or so correctional officers slash wildland firefighters. Um, and they sat there with their arms crossed and kind of leaned back in their chair, just kind of looking, <laughs> assessing me and not positively, I should say. And, uh, I went through my IRB, you know, my informed consent and did all these things and blah, 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 talked about anthropology. And one of them just raised their hand and, and, and said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember exactly, but said something along the lines of, if you don't get your red card and if you don't come out and fight fires with us, we don't want you. And I was like, Okay. And of course, in the moment, without thinking, I said, well, great, I'll just get my red card then. I'll just do that. Sure. And so I just, you know, kind of immediately <laughs> said yes, in the spirit of anthropology and improv, I guess. Um, the yes, yes. And, and I said, you know, sure. Great. And then I had to follow through on it. 
um, which I only realized later, you know, the implications of that physically. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, and so I did, I, I got my red card. I, you know, did the, found a test, you know, a place to do the, the classroom portion and then did the pack test and ended up doing that twice. Like you said, I, I did 15 months and you're absolutely right. I did two summers kind of intensive summer research. And then I went out with one crew in particular who I kind of became most close with um, throughout the winter. And, and in Arizona, they do, they do fight fires all year round. Um, it's not like a hotshot crew, you know, that, that moves seasonally. So they're just there um, constantly. And so there are fires that pop up in October, November. So occasionally we'd do little fires, but I mostly was doing um, day work with them over the winter. But um, I was also teaching at the time, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Oh, awesome. Okay. And did, do you know if they, were they doing like prescribed fire projects or thinning projects or things like that as well in the off seasons? Yes. Oh, yes. that's cool. So, and, and in the summer as well. So it's interesting because, you know, they're, they're classified as hand crews in Arizona. Um, they do, they do the same work in terms of when on an active fire there, um, you know, and, and I have tons of data from hotshot crews who with whom they worked, you know, forest service crews in particular, and some BLM hotshot crews who were very happily, you know, said uh, that they were doing the same level and 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 risk and skill work as a hotshot crew went on active fires. But they also served this other purpose of doing, you know, what could be argued is the more monotonous or right? kind of the more, um, you know, just cutting line doing do, doing those types of things on on fires, doing mop up you know, um, and then, and then transitioning to doing cutting, doing some prescribed burning, not much, but, but a little bit prescribed burning isn't, is kind of, I think, I think on the increase in Arizona, but less practiced in some places, um, that we were doing the fire. So they kind of just did everything right. Because again, they were there all year round. And again, they're kind of utilized. I would use the word and maybe one could say used, but that is a weighted word. Um, uh, in varying capacities, you know, hand crew and hotshot crew, they were doing kind of both and all, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm curious what they thought about having you along for the ride. Like, were you riding in the, um, in the crew carriers with them and like just doing the whole thing? Well, I was very bad at it. So I hope all of your listeners <laughs> fully recognize how <laughs> terrible I was. And, and, and what somebody, I think it was an advisor of mine, maybe joked like, Hey, if this PhD doesn't work out or this is before, before I defended or anything, like you could, you have a second career. And I was like, I don't think you understand, like <laughs> this is never going to happen as a career for me because I'm so truly terrible. Um, so in that regard, you know, I, I did not fully, you know, uh, fight wildfire. So there is a bit of performativity, I would say on my end. Um, however, you know, they put me on the line when it was kind of a low, lower risk fire, um, which I'm very grateful for, because again, you know, I was as an anthropologist, one of the main methods that we practice is called participant observation, which is not only interviewing and not only observing, but doing the thing that we are writing about to some extent, right? With the understanding that we'll never fully be, I'm not an incarcerated person, right? And so there is this, just this kind of break of, of understanding and of um, experience. 
but but to experience you know a wall of flames approaching you and to experience that kind of feeling of vulnerability or the feeling of strength right and the feeling of camaraderie and kind of panic and physicality and all of the things um that i'm sure you're very familiar with much more so than i am um and and, and if your listeners as well right kind of can mm-hmm. viscerally physically remember these things uh I wouldn't be able to write about that or speak about that. I think to the extent that I, that, that I do without having been on the line, even, even with the caveat that I was in the back and kind of just given the tool, you know, just given like whatever was left over. Um, I, I never rode in the buggies um, because of uh, the prison's uh, mandate against. So it was interesting, right? There's again, this kind of, I was, within multiple institutions under the under the strictures of multiple institutions the most restrictive of course being the prison so um there were some spaces i did not enter the buggy being one of them i entered it to do interviews and and you know whatever but but never rode in it um i had a forerunner an old 1993 forerunner that i bought and i lived in basically in the summers i camped out with them um, when we were on fires and doing thinning projects, we did lots of thinning projects on forest service land um, in the summer times it, it, when the rains came. So when it was kind of less, less fire risk and we would be out weeks at a time um, or I guess five days out and then two days um, for weeks at a time. Uh, I was out, you know, camping with them, staying out, out with them, but yeah. That's great. And so they were willing to like, sort of give you that, that access that you were seeking, or did it take a little bit to, I don't know, to sort of warm up to you? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I write about, I write about this a little bit here and there, especially when I talk about um, kind of, you know, it's the methodology for lack of a better word, it's the doing of anthropology, you know, so the the different forms of interviewing I use, the, the photography that I use, all these different things, but it's also just the experience of being out there, you know, and the experience, the experience of building rapport and building camaraderie. So it's, you know, personal as much as it is anthropological, um, you know, an answer to that question. And so on the anthropological end, I talk a lot about it in a, in a gendered sense, right? So being a woman, in a hyper-masculine space. And again, it's another double layer of, um, you know, and and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this and and whomever else, you know, if they want to reach out to me and love to hear it. Um, you know, the perceived hyper-masculinity of wildland firefighting and then the similar perception of that, that um, masculine performance in the prison, right? So this kind of dual layer of what I expected what I found was different and, and surprising and really interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I, I came into this space thinking how will I be accepted or will I, or what kind of connections will I be able to form given who I am? Right. Um, so all the, all the layers of positionality, all the intersecting layers of being a non-incarcerated person, being a white woman, being a researcher, right. All these different layers. Um, what I found on the personal level was just really a, a significant amount of um, kindness and a significant amount of acceptance. And and one of the things that I found that was so compelling about, I think the culture again of wildland firefighting is that it was very much, if you do 
the work or at least try, right? Even if your pants catch on fire, which, or your hair or you puke or whatever, um, or, or actually like, that's great, right? If the, the first fire I fought, it was straight up a mountain. I learned that um, over the course of my research that fires start on top of mountains. Again, I don't know if I would have done this dissertation if I knew that I had to go up mountains as much as I did. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, at the time I was a smoker, right? So I like smoked a cigarette right before. All these guys had cigarettes like hanging out of their mouths as they were hiking up the mountain. Like, I got this. I got it. I had, you know, the pack on plus camera equipment, another 10 pounds camera equipment and field field equipment. And, you know, halfway up, I just puked. I just puked. Like I just overexerted myself. One of the corrections officers stayed with me. He gave me some powder of some kind, you know, with like Gatorade type stuff. I drank it. I hiked much more slowly the second half. And when I got there, the word had somehow traveled that this happened through via radio, of course. And um, they were all so pleased at the fact that, <laughs> you know, bro- was broke off, right? Is the terminology. I don't know if that's the terminology you yes. all use, but yeah. Yep. Same stuff. So I successfully had been broke off and little did I know that that was almost like a t- test that I passed, right? That very first day. And, and, and beyond that, I guess, kind of just more broadly, right? The fact I think that I just was there and I just continued to be there was the most um, effective way of gaining trust. And I mean, we can extrapolate that to any relationship or any kind of, you know, um, type of connection we have with people is if you show up and you're genuinely interested, which I hoped, I I felt I was, and I think they picked up on that, um, you know, and then continued to continue to show up um, over the course of many months. Uh, You know, there was a lot they shared with me and and I experienced a lot of really, beautiful, intimate moments between the guys and, and, and formed really close, you know, friendships, uh, that I was very lucky to have. And, you know, they kept me alive really, you know, um, they took on a risk, right. By, by having me out there and I'm very grateful for them. Yeah. That's great. What a great story. Um, yes, everyone has a story of getting broken off at some point. (laughs) Brutal. I never, I never got better at it. (laughs) It's funny. Yeah. It's funny how that, like that, like mutual sort of suffering or like seeing somebody suffer a little bit is like enough to build that trust. Even if it means like seeing them at their kind of worst, Mm -hmm. um, versus like seeing somebody that's regularly just killing it. Like sometimes it does take like seeing somebody at their worst to really build that trust. And I've, I've noticed that in fires as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So changing, uh, I don't know, changing veins a little bit here, but I was uh, noticing, you know, in a lot of ways, your research is sort of counter to the commonly held perceptions about incarcerated firefighters, not necessarily counter, but just you kind of bring in like the actual lived experiences of incarcerated firefighters when a lot of media coverage, for example, often kind of overlooks it and kind of um, makes it seem as like as something that these individuals actually don't want to be doing or as something that's not meaningful to them. Um, whereas, you know, in your experience and your research, it seems like you're actually really taking into consideration these opinions and the actual experiences of, of these people. So I'm just curious, yeah, if you could just speak to that a little bit and kind of why you felt that was, why you felt that was important, or maybe just how the, how the experiences that you had lent to that being your general, mm-hmm. uh, finding. I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's it's a complex answer. And I'm going to try not to drone on for the next 20 hours um, <laughs> and all of your listeners will, <laughs> will just click to the next episode. Um, so I'll try to be brief. Um, yeah, what the way that I the way that I describe what, what you just very, very aptly stated is that it's a paradox, right? And I call it an experiential paradox, which is just a fancy way of saying that people experience two things that don't seem to be possible at the same time. Um, in that there's there's exploitation, which I argue, um, similar to what you you were talking about, I argue that there is that that prison labor is exploitation a priori at, at the start, right? From the jump, um, given the, the building in of the 13th amendment, right? Given the, the just vast wage difference, right? Between an incarcerated person and, and a non-incarcerated person, given the lack of, um, pay or excuse me, a lack of, um, insurance, right? Especially any death benefits, um, given the lack of any of these types of, of things that we would afford um, a person with basic human dignity, right? So, so that's the exploitative aspect of it. Um, at the same time, the other word that, again, is the paradox that I, that I pose is transformation, right? Especially at the level of identity, um, the way a person thinks about oneself. And for what I found, right, I was ready to write the dissertation on exploitation, right? And and talk about risk, in particular health risk, and, and just kind of think about the kind of technicalities of that. And that dissertation should still be written. Somebody should still do that. Um, but but what I found, and like you said, what is so important in, in terms of doing research is gathering the experience of people who are actually doing the thing. Very tough to do that in the prison setting because the prison is a black box on purpose, right? Um, they don't let people in and they don't, they don't let what happens in there come out very often. Um, but if you can get in there, um, it's important, it's important to kind of understand that the folks who are inside, um, understand their position within the system, right? I had guys citing the 13th amendment, you know, that slavery is illegal and except if you've committed a crime, right? Um, back to me, right? And they're like, yeah, that sounds about right, right? And and they place themselves within this broader kind of carceral system, economic system, um, while also fundamentally feeling like this, this program, for example, is the first place they've felt safe. Again, kind of seems incongruous, right? Felt safe because they have developed really close friendships, almost brotherhood, you know, level kinship friendships. Um, felt like they were worth something, right? And not monetarily, but again, at the level of identity um, and, and at the level of selfhood, um, which again is really hard. It's really hard to capture the, how that weighs against in my ar argument, right? Like the inherent exploitation. And, and that's why I always kind of just straddle, right? And I always just say like, just get uncomfortable with the fact that it can be both. And and think through, um, think through the the implications of that, right? Uh, for ultimately the folks who are inside doing the work, um, not so much to be outraged uh, on their behalf, but but and it's okay to be outraged on their behalf if you feel that way, um, but to treat incarcerated people 
with um, dignity and humanity, just as you would any other person who's laboring in any other way, right? Fantastic. That was a great answer to a question that was very heady, I admit. I like am looking at the question that I had written down and it's like two paragraphs long. <laughs> my, like, my, oh, answer no. been, my well, my answer was my 300 page dissertation. So right. honestly, there are sometimes I speak 300 words or 300 pages of words on that. And so I tried really hard. I tried. Yeah, that really was <laughs> the going. summation of your dissertation, wasn't it? I, uh, I really asked for a lot there. <laughs> um, so kind of in the same realm, what are some misconceptions about incarcerated fire crews that you maybe came into this research hoping to address or that you ended up addressing kind of along the way that you maybe didn't expect? Well, you know, related to, related to that last point, you know, again, I had, when I was, just beginning to disseminate this research, kind of tell people about it, right? Had done enough, had done maybe five or six months worth and wrote a, wrote a nice little um, poster and presented it at a, at a session. Um, I had somebody come up and ask me if I was a proponent of prison labor, if I was pro prison labor, because that's how it read um, to this person. And it set me back on my heels, right? A little bit, um, because again, I'm, I'm not, right? Um, at, at the kind of the um the base level both personally and and theoretically and analytically but what i wanted to do was add nuance and like you said life experience to the kind of straightforward argument that one can make um and and complicate it a little bit naturally because things are complicated right when we include human beings in the mix um and also to underscore the creative the creative ways in which human beings always find meaning in their life, right? Um, so even under these oppressive um, institutions like the prison, and even though they're making a dollar an hour and, you know, um, their, their, their healthcare is truly a joke, right? Um, uh, and if they were to die, death benefits are, are a maybe, um, or a no, <laughs> no, no to a maybe. Um, even, even with that, right, the fact that, and even with individuals in the prison knowing that, um, I was so surprised to find, and so this is what I changed to kind of really, again, drive home this paradox, I, I found it to be true, the fact that individuals with that knowledge find ways to create a space of dignity and create a space of meaning making in their daily life. And again, that's something that we can all relate to, I think, right? And, um, and it really, it really forces me to always place the experience of the folks who I'm researching first and, and place my own, you know, thoughts and my own assumptions and all those other things second. And I think that that's really key for me as a researcher and for anyone kind of, you know, exploring a thing, a, a topic that might be challenging or might be thorny or might be tricky, right, is to say, who are the people that are saying they are having this experience? What do they think first, right? And so I think that's one thing. And then the other major thing that surprised me beyond this, this transformative meaning making that, that complicates things um, is the expression of masculinity. So that's, that's what I was talking about a bit earlier. Um, and again, I had assumed that it would be a hyper-masculine uh, and, and relatively 
toxically masculine hegemonic is the is the jargony word the anthropological word which basically just means that there's this kind of social hierarchy that continues to exist right with some people want some type of men on top and some type of men you know falling out under that um truly not that was maybe not the best description of that but anyway um i expected that type of masculinity to exist what i found was actually the opposite or if not the opposite really a rather distinct experience for the guys on the crew um and i think in part it's because something that we talked about a little bit earlier the sense of vulnerability of that that stems from the risk of wildland firefighting creates an intimacy right between people because if you're if you're facing death or you're facing, you know, bodily harm or risk, there's, there's a level at which you kind of break down barriers and break down walls, right? That helps to build rapport, like we were talking about earlier, and really helps to forge close connections. Um, and I think it also helps reformulate the way you think about yourself in relationship to others in really powerful ways. So there was a sense of smallness that I heard a lot of these guys talking about. And they shared that with me. We did a lot of night sky watching um, out on these fires, uh, you know, and the stars are just really so spectacular when you're out there. And a lot of times we just have these conversations or sometimes I'd just be silent and just kind of listening um, of just feeling very small, right? Like feeling the universe be, be very big or seeing the planes overhead dropping the slurry and 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 kind of feeling almost like, dissolved or just like teeny tiny in this landscape right or seeing fi the fire right just so much bigger than you and feeling feeling that um uh, you know almost like a like a shift in the sense of yourself and i think again as it relates to masculinity it's it's almost antithetical right to the sense of like the big dog especially on the prison right kind of like looking out for yourself and being kind of the the main person, right? Like the main kind of guy in your sphere. Um, and, and instead it being about community, about being about brotherhood and about being about um, part of something bigger. And this resulted in these men talking about their trauma, talking about their childhood trauma, right? Um, that in part led them to incarceration, led them to addiction, et cetera. Um, talked about the trauma of incarceration. So seeing people die, seeing people be hurt in, in the prison, um, seeing, um, you know, just the things that happen in prison that are really traumatic uh, and mundanely traumatic too, right? Seeing people just kind of turn into um, or, or be a threat to turn into somebody who they were not, right? Um, they talked through all that. And that happened in these open spaces that happened in these natural spaces and that happened with the help of each other. And they talk so frequently about how, you know, being a man, uh, being a man meant something different to them um, after spending time on this crew. And it wasn't, I mean, there was plenty of like, let's swing our axes and whoever can swing it hardest, right? <laughs> like wins a prize, right? Like there was a lot of things that were just, I guess you could consider typically masculine. So that's, you know, of course, right? I'm, I'm not arguing that this is some kind of fairy tale utopian anything. 
um, very much normal dudes being dudes, right? Um, which is great. But there was almost this this shift in, in, in expression of what it meant to be a man, which then led to a, a shift in expression of what it meant to be a person. Um, and again, when I talk about transformation as the paradox of exploitation, that's really what I mean, right? Is that there is a sense of self that emerged on these crews and a sense of self that was born out of the risk of firefighting and of the relationships, the very intimate and very vulnerable and very inclusive relationships between the men. Um, and I found it utterly powerful and really um, transformative for my own work and my own sense of self, right? Um, I was really um, touched by, you know, just seeing seeing that kind of on a daily basis. And, and that's why it became the kind of the centerpiece of my research. That's incredible. That was great. Yeah, cool, really cool to hear that the experience of wildland fire is really pretty uniform across different crews and regardless of gender and regardless of the gender makeup of crews. Um, so can you, I, I, I hope I, it's okay if I ask you a question. What, Please do. What, what, do you, what is your experience with what I just described? Is that like, yeah, you're kind of hinting it that it's kind of something similar, but is that what you found? So similar. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the vulnerability that you get on, on fire crews is, is unlike anything I've ever experienced in another any other vocation or any other really element of my life. And I just actually wrote a piece about this, trying to get to that sort of essential point of like these, these, these relationships and like what you find out about yourself in these uh, environments is, is really an essential part of who I am now. Mm. And I really don't think I would have been able to reach those mm -hmm. realizations. And I'm sure a lot of the, a lot of the people on my crew can probably, or on my past crews can probably say the same thing that you wouldn't reach those realizations about yourself without that essential vehicle of fighting fire with these, these, this, you know, group of 20 people or this group of 10 people that you'd mm -hmm. never met prior and that you have mm -hmm. to like form these really critical relationships with because you're relying on each other so heavily. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I have, I've had very similar experiences in terms of like just laying on, you know, laying in a field at night, looking at the stars with people, um, being spiked out on various ridge lines or out in the middle of nowhere, all the, like all summer long. And just having those, those conversations that you really don't have anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And those realizations that you really can't get without that experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I really miss it now, especially, especially cause it's almost been two years mm. since I fought fire. And I'm like, man, do I want to get back into fire? Like I really miss that, that element of it. Um, yeah. And it's like, where else can you, where else can you find that? Right. Is yeah. there, is there some type that a lot of people ask me, you know, so, and I, and I created a set of recommendations for the prison, you know, to improve the material conditions, the economic slash, you know, kind of physical conditions of health conditions of the guys um, and women, of course, I just work with uh -huh. the guys. So I say right. that a little bit um, erroneously, but um, you know, people ask, how do you, if there's this potential for transformation, even understanding that it it's kind of within this carceral, you know, kind of oppressive institution, um, what else can, where else can you find this, right? And how, how does this, how can this exist? You know, and I often say like, at least for me, again, because I have, because I see the labor element as so problematic, um, if this, could happen in a non-labor context. Um, to me, that would be much better, right? But but it's but where what else? What, what else? You know, I haven't found it. I have not found it. Yeah, yeah. It's really I, tough. 
I've get I've gotten like the physical part of it taken care mm-hmm. of through trail running or backpacking, you know, even backpacking with a few friends like mm-hmm. that sort of touches that, that sort of feeling that I got from fire, but nothing has really come close since then. And I can't imagine anything would, it's very similar to like the military. And I think that's why a lot of military guys, a lot of, a lot of veterans end up in wildland fire because of that sort of essential, like human connection that you make when you're, and there were several guys who were in prison who were also, um, veterans, um, who, who then were on the cruise. So kind of very similar. And also, you know, just to add on another layer of this indicates why it's so critical to have these kind of mental health resources for wildland firefighters across the board, right? Non-incarcerated as well as incarcerated, because just like there is that need for folks who were in the military, right? There's this really intense bond and this really intense um, risk for, for, for the military. There's that added layer of kind of like violence. Um, and and, uh, and then you're back, right? You, you, yep. you're done back to normal. Mm-hmm. And then for firefighters, right. It's such a short, it's such a short time span, um, relatively, you know, in a person's career, unless they kind of do the career firefighting thing and go into, you know, kind of administrative roles. Um, and, and there's mental health concerns and there are real issues that then, you know, you know, the, the stuff that's brought up for these guys, right. Um, out on these fires, um, who are, who are in prison, they're not getting those mental health resources and certainly not when they're out. Right. That might not Mm -hmm. be a priority for them. So, um, financially speaking. So, um, yeah, you know, like trying to build in these structures of support, um, because these jobs, um, are, are risky on, on many levels and also transformative on many levels that then will continue to need support right after Mm -hmm. you're done with the physical fighting of fires. Totally. Mm -hmm. It totally, it leaves a void. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really Mm -hmm. interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't really considered that as, um, I mean, I'd considered that as like the sort of the reasoning behind why I've had mild mental health issues in my mm-hmm. off seasons, but I hadn't really considered it kind of on a, on a broader spectrum. And I certainly hadn't consider it, hadn't considered it in the, um, in the realm of incarcerated firefighters and having those resources available to them too, because that's potentially even, even yeah, more you know, critical. It's, it's so interesting. There's it's, it's honestly, it wasn't my idea. I have to be honest. And I wish I had the, the resource, maybe I'll try to dig it up and, and send it to you, but mm-hmm. there was actually some, um, I think it was a GoFundMe, which indicates right, like people right. for their own care, um, unfortunately, in this world. But um, there, there was some big, big push to basically fund men- a mental health effort for wildland firefighters in particular, not in car- not incarcerated wildland wildland firefighters, I think, um, forest service, Mm -hmm. because there was a huge, in the last like three or so years, a huge uptick in, um, folks who, um, died by suicide, um, in the wildland firefighting community. And I think it's related to, you know, loss and related to loss of property and, and life and all of these things and, and the risk again, and kind of like the, all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really, it seems, you know, I, I came across that and it really made me similar to what you just said. I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think of, you know, think about the ramifications of it after the fact. Totally. Yeah. That's a huge, it's a huge problem right now. Um, and a huge point of advocacy in the, in the fire community is, is right. 
trying to get that the word out and just trying to get the agencies that employ wildland firefighters to sort of provide better resources and yes. more accessible resources yeah. and also just changing the conditions of the work that we're doing yes. providing better benefits and yeah. um you know the whole sort of systematic yeah. element to it not just every, being like every part here's of some it. mental health resources or like here's like two free therapy sessions or whatever like you know there's not going to cut it exactly yeah. um this is the first uh this is the first episode where i've really engaged in like a full on conversation with my guests and i'm hoping to like transition into this more in this coming season so i'm i'm really digging this i like it Good. If you have any more any more questions for me i'd love to hear them um but my my last question is just kind of uh, just a memorable moment that you had in the course of your research, uh, whether it's a memorable person or a member, I'm sure there were multiple and you've already shared a few of them, but, um, if you could just, yeah, give me a few notable moments that you had or notable findings that you had. Mm. Goodness gravy. That's a really hard one. I always have a hard time. Like, <laughs> and I also feel I feel like I'm turning into like a grandma a little mm -hmm. prematurely here where I, like, I have like the four stories that I just tell everyone and everyone's like, yeah, we really like grandma. Like we know, you yeah. um, <laughs> it's like everyone has, so I feel like I've told the same ones. Cause you know, I know I do the same thing. I have like yeah. four signature fire stories that I tell to everybody right? and my close and friends like have the heard cool them a thousand times. Stories. Yep. You pull them out. Well, when we used to go to parties, um, <laughs> <another> time. <laughs> I haven't told anybody any story like for a year. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's think about it. Well, one fire, I know so a lot of your listeners are, are firefighters, right? Or, or, or. Yeah. Farmers. I I'm trying to sort of work more into like the just general, like public land user Great. audience, but a lot of them are in the fire world in some capacity right now. Good, good. Well, to all of those who are listening that are, um, again, just, you know, the work that all people related to fire from the folks who are serving the meals at the camps to, you know, up and down to all incarcerated peoples. Um, really just, I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast and there's a space for that um, because there's lots of people and lots of people doing very critical work. Um, so I'm really, I just want to say thank you to all of those people, <laughs> um, everyone listening. And thanks to everyone listening anyway, just because I'm sure you're all doing something wonderful. Um, but, but one of one of the memories of a fire I had, and this is one of the times that I went on the line and I think they thought it was a low, low risk, relatively low risk fire, but it turned into something a little bit more extreme. Um, it was on a gun range, on a military gun range, speaking about the military, it was on a base and, you know, some, they were doing some shooting, big shooting practice. This is my ignorance showing yet again up in a, a whole other thing that I know very little about. Um, but, you know, a bullet is so, so dry in Arizona before the submarines come and a bullet caught on, caught the grass on fire and then it quickly rolled up the mountain. And we were working, um, do, just doing a, a clearing thing kind of close by. And so we were the first crew, I was with the crew who kind of responded first. And because we were first and because it was still all very new, um, they just put me on the line, right? And they, again, in the back. <laughs> and um, it was really wild because there were so many unused bullets, again, empty bullets, but the shells, right? Um, uh, on the ground. And while, as the fire and the smoke was coming, they all started popping, right? Also little fake um, grenades. Um, so the sound of them, right. We're going off, off and off and off. And I don't know if you've ever gone on a fire like that, but 
<laughs> but I didn't know what was happening. I was panicking like full, fully. And there are photos of me on this fire of like me trying to not panic. Um, it's very funny. And, and unfortunately for some of the guys who have this kind of compounding PTSD from being active military to being incarcerated to them being on this fire, um, they, there was a lot of care, kind of a lot of care between the men happening because the sound of that, right. It was smoke. It was full on. We were like fully decked out and the, the fire was coming towards us. And so it was really kind of, you know, this really chaotic scene. And then it was just fully gunshots, fully grenades going off. And it was, again, they weren't real, but the noise was real. And, um, people were, it was scary, right? Like it felt, and one of the guy, one of the correctional officers who served in the Iraq war was right next to me. And he looked at me and he was like, like kind of just had this, you know, face of like, <laughs> I haven't had this experience since being in Iraq. And I was, it, it, it struck me how, again, these life histories of these individuals, right? And again, this was the correctional officer, the guy next to him was from the same town in rural Arizona, just a couple years apart, same high school, but he was in prison, right? And so these guys, right, these kind of like strange connections and kind of the razor thin line between getting caught and not getting caught or one's race and that's why you're in prison or not, right? And then these life experiences of serving in the military and then finding oneself on the fire. And then I was just smack dab in the middle of it, trying to kind of process, process it as there were bullets and grenade sounds and fire and water and things. And, and as it reached kind of its people were, it was almost like too much, right? Like it was almost a little bit, everyone was kind of super hyped up. And one of the planes came by to dump water and they missed their target and dumped it directly on us. Um, and so we all got doused and it, the, the mood shifted kind of immediately to like hilarity, right? Everyone was laughing. I have it on, I have it on video the moment that it hits us and we were all screaming and laughing and it was kind of just like this release, right? Of that panic and of those memories and everything. And, and for me, just like a moment of like to breathe, even though I was like soaked and it was such a spectacular ethnographic experience and just real experience. Right. Um, and I don't know if the guys who have fought many fires since, right. Um, have that same memory as I do, but as an anthropologist turned firefighter for a brief moment, that, that tends to stand out as a, as a very exceptional, as a very exceptional fire. And I think encapsulates kind of every thing, right. That, um, that I, that I write about, right? Like their relationships, kind of the life histories, this, these, these moments of feeling both physically and emotionally and, and just how powerful all of it can be. All right, folks, that's all we've got for today. Thanks for listening as always. And if you enjoyed this episode, um, please uh, share it with anybody that you think might be interested in it. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can find us at Life with Fire Pod on all the platforms. And finally, I would love it if you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. While you're there, you can maybe write us a review if you feel like it or if you have a particularly uh, exciting opinion of the podcast, uh, whatever you want to do. But those are some options. Thank you for listening. 
Information about um, Dr. Feldman's research can be found in our show notes, as well as the link to our Patreon and our social media pages. Thanks again for listening, and I will catch you in the next one.